Hello listeners, my name is Tashara and welcome to another episode of the LSE Focal Point podcast. Today I'm very excited to be joined by Gregory Peters. Greg is a co-chief investment officer at PGM Fixed Income. He's also a senior portfolio manager for various strategies at PGM Fixed Income. He was the managing director at Morgan Stanley and holds a bachelor's degree in finance from the College of New Jersey and an MBA from Fordham University. Greg, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Great to hear and thanks for being here. So to kick things off, could you tell us more about your journey to becoming the co-chief investment officer at PGM Fixed Income? Yeah, well, it's definitely been a long, circuitous path. I've done a lot of different things throughout my career. I started with the U.S. Treasury, which was a fantastic job at a university. I learned a tremendous amount. I had a, a lot of responsibility. From there, I actually made a move to Wall Street, where I started as a mortgage derivative trader. From there, I actually moved into credit research, and then strategy, and then macro research, and then... I, I decided I wanted to move to the buy side to actually invest money directly. And I happily wound up here at PGM, where I was a multi-sector PM, and now currently a co-CIO. Great to hear. Uh, definitely many different experiences. I'm sure you learned a lot from it. And I'm sure that a lot of us are curious what your day-to-day -day job looks like. And I'm sure that no two days are the same, but could you provide us with some in insight into what your daily work looks like? Yeah, so it's it's a combination of lots of different factors. And so I think of it as rote, random, reactionary, and also invigorating. And so what do I mean by that? So the rote part is, I think it's very important to have a, a process you know, each and every day of evaluating the markets, evaluating your portfolios, that's the piece that, you know, you really have to have a systematized process in order to make sure you're going through all the appropriate aspects of not only the economies, the markets, but your own portfolios. The random part is, you know, life changes, markets change. And so you're always kind of dealing with uh, new information, new ideas at your portfolio. And... The reactionary part is dealing with all that market data and that ever-changing landscape uh, as you have to you know, alter not only your thinking, but your portfolio risk you know, as those facts change. And then honestly, from a portfolio management perspective, just you know, inflows and outflows of the portfolio is something that you have to contend with um, on a daily basis. And then the invigorating part is the best part about being in finance, I think, in that you learn something new each and every day. Everything is constantly changing, and it's such a stimulating environment, and so it never gets old. So even though you have a portion of your day that's quite rote, everything else is really quite, quite invigorating. Great. Sounds like a balance between sort of the predictable tasks and the less predictable stuff, which is Absolutely, what, say, yes. what, what makes it interesting. Great. So I'm sure that, you know, we spoke earlier about your career journey and how you've sort of, you know, dipped your feet in many different things. I'm sure that there have been quite a few challenges that you've had to face along the way. Is there one in particular that really stands out as your greatest challenge in your career? And how did what did you do to overcome that? 
So it's hard to narrow it down to one, so I won't. So I'll do it three. And, and there are different facets of it. The first is the challenge that I had, you know, moving from a trading seat into a research seat was, was a challenge for me. That being said, it was more of a psychological challenge. And what I mean by that is, you know, I thought that, you know, being in trading seat was, you know, the most important job on Wall Street. And so moving to research where you're not directly pulling the trigger was something that was hard for me to initially bite down on. That said, it was the best change that could have ever happened to me. So my preconceived notions were completely off. So being in a research seat where I, I had the ability to be less reactionary, more thoughtful, forward-looking, spend more time critically assessing, really fit my personality. So my snap reaction around, you know, move, moving out of trading into research was a learning lesson and a real challenge at the time. The second was the global financial crisis, right? So, you know, working at Morgan Stanley at the time was just one of the greatest challenges that I've ever faced. And ultimately what the challenge was is that you realize how little you know. So I felt like I was very well in tune to a lot of different aspects around the connectivity of the financial system and the markets. But each and every day I was surprised by something. So that was just a tremendous challenge because you didn't know where things were unraveling and where it was coming from. It was just so complicated and so multifaceted. So that was a challenge for sure. And then kind of going through it real time as the markets are melting down and you're kind of on this existential ride with it uh, was, uh, was difficult. And then the last one, I would say it's March 20 pandemic. So the pandemic obviously proved to be challenging in many different respects, of course, human element, which I don't want to gloss over, but from a market perspective, right? We've never seen a situation where we close down economies globally and trying to deal with that from a portfolio management standpoint was really difficult. And, and let me just kind of give you a story within the portfolio. So we've had this position in our portfolio as a pub company. You think about the classic anti-cyclical, it's the English pubs, right? So through difficult times, through good times, the pubs stay open. Well, they didn't during the pandemic. So this is a great example where we thought we had something in our portfolio that was, you know, less sensitive to the cycle became front and center to the cycle, you know? So it just, it really kind of made you rethink so many different widely held norms as well. Great. Very interesting to hear, especially from someone who's worked through two such major events. So that, that was very interesting to hear. We've, you know, we've spoken a bit about your career and your journey. And, you know, you sort of ended talking about March 2020. And as we're coming out of the pandemic, we've seen a lot of changes in the economy, some of which are still very much prevalent today. So to talk a little bit about that, particularly interest rates. Interest rates have called into called into question the traditional equity or fixed income relationship that we were familiar with. 
Would you agree that this protective role of bonds is undermined? And if so, are there any viable replacements? Well, so I think that narrative has shifted, actually. I think bonds are back. Bonds with yields higher, they're, they're slated to do what they're intended to do. And in fact, pre-pandemic, that's when the whole bond question was really on the table, right? And so let's kind of rewind the clock if we can. So we had, you know, just called three years ago, $2 trillion of negative yielding debt. Right in the world now we have 1.5 trillion, and that's really all in Japan. So Europe, as an example, have been living in this world of interest rates, and when interest rates are negative, it's just <laughs> to state the obvious, it's not a great environment for investing. Right, so you put a lot of pressure on pension funds, you put a lot of pressure on individual investors. So with rates normalizing, you know, you think about the 10-year boons, right? It moved from minus 86 basis points to now just called 250 basis points. That changes the whole dynamic. So there's been a secular shift to the positive for bonds and bond investors. So that narrative where bonds don't assert their value was indeed true. And we've effectively lived through it the past, you know, 18 months. But where we're at today is very different. So I think the bond market is back. I think investors will allocate increasingly so into the bond market as they've been forced out of the bond market all these years, right? When interest rates are zero and negative, central banks are inducing investors to take unnatural risks in many cases, right? So with rates normalizing, those investors move back to their preferred habitat and more natural state. And I think that's where we are today. Great. And uh, that's great to hear that bonds are back. And we, we did talk a little bit about inflation, but given that, you know, certain, you know, certain commentators believe that inflation will remain structurally elevated, and that's likely to translate into increased volatility across asset classes. And typically, we would be looking at the threats that this would pose. But what are some of the opportunities that this could present? Yeah, so what we learned in 2022 is that inflation and stagflation, more appropriately, is bad for all assets, right? And so that whole repricing made for a very tough road in 2022. So while I do believe that this structural disinflation that we've been going through the past, just call it decade, uh, has been altered. I don't know if it's been dramatically altered though. So I don't think we're back into this 1970s, 1980s type of environment, but yeah, it seems like there is a little more broad-based inflation. And I view that as a more of a positive than a negative, if anything, as it keeps interest rates at a, 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 a more you know, a higher level, number one. But number two, I think it's actually good for workers' wages and those types of things. So I think being in a disinflationary, deflationary environment isn't a positive one for society, for sure. So I think having a little inflation in the mix is helpful. That said, you know, inflation has to continue to, to recede. And it looks like that is indeed 
underway. So we're coming off these double digit type of inflation readings. The question ultimately on the table is where does it land? So there's this, this 2% level, this magical 2% level. Uh, I'm not sure that's the appropriate one, but I think you need to be somewhere in striking distance of that. And so if inflation rests at 5%, that means central banks have a lot more work ahead of them. If it lands at you know two eight, then I think they're fine. You know, so so uh, so so I think we'll find out along the way. Having a little inflation in the system, all else equal, isn't such a terrible outcome. Great, thank you for that. And you know, we've we've talked about inflation quite a bit in rates, but another key theme really becoming quite popular is sustainable investing. So this brings forth the question of, you know, how investors can utilize thematic or sustainable investments to reduce their exposure to the cyclicality and this increased inflation that's widely expected. Yeah, I would I would, I think that aspect might be overplayed to a certain degree. It doesn't necessarily lend itself to less cyclicality or less focus on on inflation or more, more exposure or less exposure to inflation. So I think that's somewhat of a, a gimmick, all else equal. Somewhat perversely, I think thematic investing and sustainable investing requires a longer, a longer investment horizon, right? So if you're endeavoring to invest in that format, I think focusing on the near term and even the the hypercyclical aspect goes against what you're trying to achieve in the first place. So, so, so to me, those two things don't comport and they're incongruent. So I'm a big fan of sustainable investing, but I don't think it is a way to insulate your portfolio around the cyclicality. And in fact, it might expose you a little more to the cycle. Ultimately, you need to take a longer-term view for it to work. Well, it's definitely an interesting, interesting way of looking at it, given the investment horizons, and you know it could potentially be something that is sort of overplayed. So, something very interesting happening in happened in January, where there's sort of been a lot of investor interest in fixed income ETFs, and in January we saw that they had more inflows than equity ETFs. Could you? Explain to us why this is so significant, and do you think such an interest is set to continue? I do. I think fits with my bonds are back thesis. With yield being higher, once again, I, I, I believe that investors' natural habitat is to be more in bonds, particularly as you think about the aging demographic piece, right? Investors want income, right? They they don't necessarily want to take on the same type of risk as they would in, in the equity market. So a lot of investors have been forced, quote unquote, into more risky type of assets than they initially wanted to invest in. So uh, I expect this trend to continue. I see a renormalization of the asset allocation scheme where investors have broadly been over allocated to equities and under allocated to fixed income. I think that will start to settle back to more normal levels globally, actually, but particularly 
in Europe. So I think it's just the start. And, you know, thinking about ETFs, ETFs are a vehicle that people use to, you know, the initial first step, if you would, right? I think the next phase is to have a more, more kind of targeted investment in fixed income around active management, where they get exposure to, you know, alpha in the process instead of just having a broad allocation. And, you know, that's a, an area of the market that we traffic in, of course, is we're active of fixed income managers, but, you know, we see tremendous opportunity in the market now because it's so dispersed and that wasn't the case in the past, right? So, so the world has changed, the investment landscape has changed. And I think, you know, this will be a multi-year process where we begin to normalize. Definitely. And it's very interesting to see, as you mentioned, how, you know, market behavior is changing and how that actually provides a lot of opportunities that we, you know, maybe didn't have as much of before. So we've, you know, we've had a very interesting discussion about your career and, you know, sort of the challenges you faced, your day-to-day work and some things that are going on in the economy. So to wrap things up, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Yeah, so I guess I have four tenets to success, I'll call, call it, right? The first is read voraciously. So, you know, I find examination of all different types of topics, whether it's financial history or very history to be incredibly helpful and insightful. At the same time, I would also layer in there, tune out the white noise. I think investors are so caught up in the, the media and what's going on that it's creating this self-fulfilling, self-reinforcing confirmation bias. So like for me, when things get, you know, crazy, let's call it, I, 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 I stop reading the financial press and, and turn off the TV and turn to financial history or other type of, you know, biographies and that type of stuff. But definitely read voraciously. The second tenet is ask questions constantly. So, you know, what we learned again and again, but definitely in the pandemic and post-pandemic is that you have to question consensus. You have to think about things differently. And so we better ourselves by constantly asking questions. So that's the second. And then part and parcel to that is the third, which is listen intently. You know, crowding out other ideas, other opinions by speaking all the time is not helpful, right? And so, you know, the adage that my mother always used to quote back to me is that you learn a lot more by listening than you do talking, right? And so it's really important to listen, not just wait for a pause in the action so you can speak, right? But be a proactive, intent listener. And then finally, I think humility is an absolute necessity. You have to be humble. You have to realize what you know and what you don't know. And, you know, if you don't have humility in this marketplace, I, I, I think your, your ultimate career is doomed, right? It's a much shorter career, let's put it that way. And I think humility in all facets was important. So those are kind of my... My four tenets, if you would, of success in terms of my final thoughts. No, thank you for sharing your tenets of success with us. I'm sure that's something we can apply to our lives. 
I'm sure that our listeners appreciate your insights and can take a lot away from this episode. Greg, it has been a pleasure having you here today, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us. No, thank you. Thanks for having me, and uh, I really appreciate the opportunity, and uh, you know, I wish uh, nothing but success for all of you. Great. Thank you so much, and thank you to our audience for listening, and stay tuned for more episodes to come.